following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, uh, Emily, come on up. Uh, Emily wants to talk a little bit about Thomas Judd. As Emily is coming up, uh, just a note, and I'll be saying this the next couple Sundays for sure as well, is that our plan this year is not to do a Christmas Eve service here. Um, part of that is typically because it's a very crowded experience and that's not necessarily recommended right now. We will be doing our Christmas focus the Sunday before Christmas. So on our normal Sunday morning service, we will be um, not necessarily recreating everything we did before on Christmas Eve, but making sure that that's a real focused time uh, on just the birth of Christ. I mean, obviously we're leading up to it all through Advent but that will be our Christmas service this year. All right, Emily, talk to us about Thomas Judd. Morning, everyone. Sometimes I like to check my Fitbit when I come up here to see my heart rate, and it's like 110. That seems normal for standing in front of people. Um, all right, so I'm up here to give you an update on Thomas Judd. I was up here a few weeks ago telling you we can't do our normal Thanksgiving dinner this year because of COVID concerns, so our backup plan was donate our budget to the clinic in the form of gift cards, and then they can give it to the patients. Um, our budget, though, is only $450, which is great in other years because it keeps it low, but when you're trying to just give gift cards to people, it's not a lot um, to pass out among a big group of people. So I asked you for money, as I do, and my goal in my head was like, if we can just get to 1000 including our budget, I will be happy. We didn't quite do that, or we didn't do that. Um, instead, over the last few weeks, you guys donated over $1,500. Yay, I know, thank you. Which means that um, last Monday, I dropped um, off $2,000 worth of gift cards to the Thomas Judd Clinic. I'm a little verklempt. <laughs> Um, partly because that's just who I am as a human being, and partly because I'm so grateful to be a part of this community, to be a part of CLG, and I know that this year has been really hard, emotionally, mentally, physically, and financially, so to, for this community to open up not only your hearts, but your wallets, when it might have been a strain or it might have been easier not to do that, I'm really proud to be a part of this community and how well you guys love and how sacrificially you give. I'm just really proud of that. So next year I will be up here asking for pies and turkeys again. <laughs> but this year I just wanted to come up here and say thank you. Um, I just really appreciate it. Thanks, Emily. Uh, just as kind of a follow-up to what Emily said about your generosity, if you're on the, the Facebook prayer page for the church, uh, I post on there kind of updates on offerings and things like that. And so those of you who are on that page know that this has also been a year in the midst of a lot of difficult circumstances where you all have been very faithful in your giving for the support of the church. And um, the church is in the, what's the good side? The church is in the good side of the ledger for the year. Um, and even though we're tightening some things for next year, it has really been um, heartwarming and encouraging to, to see that aspect of church life uh, be ongoing. So thank you very much for that. Very appreciated. 
All right, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and we are going to focus on peace this morning. Even as we're going through 2 Timothy, it just so turns out that what we're talking about actually has a lot to say about the issue of peace. Luke 2, beginning of verse... 10 in chapter 2 says, an angel said to them, and this is the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace. And I put the original word next to it because that's going to become important throughout the morning. On earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So because I'm a word geek, we have to look at what that word means before we go further. I'll give you two definitions. One from Strong's Concordance, which just says it's peace of mind. It's about the health or the welfare of an individual. So health, good welfare to individuals, on whom the favor of God rests. Helps Word Study says it has to do with all the essential parts being joined together. So think, I guess, of ourselves, body, soul, and spirit. It's all working well. There's a peace. It's God's gift of wholeness. So once again, back to Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, God's gift of wholeness to those on whom God's favor rests. And so that's going to take us now into 2 Timothy, but we're going to get there by means of Romans. And this is chapter 8, verses 3. Because what we've been talking about with this section from Timothy is Paul's explanation to Timothy. And once again, this is Paul close to the end of his life where he's, he's just saying some things to Timothy really bluntly, like, you need to know this. I've got to convey this before I leave. And so this section at the beginning of 2 Timothy 3 is Paul going, you've got to recognize a particular kind of people in the church. They bring these things in. They sow discord. They sow chaos. Uh, this is the kind of thing you've got to watch out for. And what we've been doing is by implication going, all right, so if that's the thing that can destroy a church, what does it look like for a church body to be built up? What's the opposite of those things? It'll unify the church and it'll bring flourishing to God's people. So I think that idea is peace, this wholeness in the church. It begins with what God does in the individual, but then it manifests itself in the community. And so elsewhere, and it's, it's assumed Paul is the writer of Romans, Paul says this about this contrast. So in Timothy, he's doing it with just a real functional list. Here's the idea. So this is Romans 8, beginning in verse 3, and I'm excerpting it a bit just because it could be a fairly long passage, and I want to be focused on these parts. To condemn the sin that was ruling in the flesh, God sent his own son, bearing the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. So now we're able to live up to the justice that was demanded by the law. But that ability has not come from living by our fallen human nature. It has come because we walk according to the movement of the spirit in our lives. If you live your life animated by the flesh, namely your fallen corrupt nature, that's the bad list we've been looking at from 2 Timothy. 
Then your mind is focused on the matters of the flesh. But if you live your life animated by the Spirit, namely God's indwelling presence, then your focus is on the work of the Spirit. A mind focused on the flesh is doomed to death. But a mind focused on the Spirit will find life and complete same word that the angel said to the shepherd. It'll bring you this peace, this gift of wholeness. The power of sin and death has been eclipsed by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit breathes life into our mortal sin-infested bodies. You live in the Spirit, assuming, of course, that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And if the anointed one lives within you, even though the body is as good as dead because of the effects of sin, and I think the idea that is even if you have been ravaged in a practical sense by the toll sin takes on us, the Spirit is infusing you with life now that you are right with God. So if the Spirit of the one who resurrected Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, you can be sure that he who raised him will cast the light of life into your mortal bodies through the life-giving power of the Spirit residing in you. So that's kind of where we're going with the contrast this morning. It's this idea of the life-giving plan of Jesus for us, not just as individuals, but as a church community. And it is inspired by the Spirit, it is empowered by the Spirit, and it leads us into this experience of wholeness, of peace that God has offered to us. A mind focused on the Spirit will find full life and complete peace. So, of course, ultimately the foundation is the peace that Jesus won for us on the cross between us and God, right? We're unholy. God is holy. The Bible describes us as rebels. Jesus builds a peace between us and God because of his sacrifice. And that's a reality that goes much deeper than just our practical experience of do I feel at peace? Well, no matter how I feel, this peace has been won by Christ. It's a reality we can always stand on, even if our emotions go up and down. So then we live in that peace. And I heard a pastor this last week reference the verse about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I had always been raised that that kind of meant, okay, at the end of the day, I got to hear what everybody's saying, and then I got to own my faith for myself. I kind of got to wrestle with it so that when I make a decision for Christ, I have worked out my salvation with fear and trembling. And I actually think that's a really good idea, and in the context of all of Scripture, I think Scripture would support that. You need to own the decision you make for Christ. But as this pastor was explaining it, he said, actually, I I think it's more like, and I'll use this analogy, a baker adds yeast to dough, uh, and this yeast is the salvation, and then they kind of work it out. I was going to bring dough up on the stage, but I thought that might be a bad idea. Gets in the carpet. But that's the idea that we're given this gift of salvation and that we work it out into our lives. We make sure that it gets to every corner, every aspect of what we do as a Christian. And so the Bible gives us clarity on what it looks like to apply that to our lives. The Holy Spirit inspires us and empowers us. Um, Like I said, God's word clarifies the path. God's people work with us. Um, If we have trouble working that dough, We've got people alongside of us who are helping us work out the practical application of our salvation into every aspect of our life. So here now in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul presents this pretty grim picture in chapter 3 of what it looks like if it's not salvation you're working out into every aspect of your life. 
If it's sin and chaos, and we looked at the roots the other day, this love of self and love of power and pleasure and money and all these kinds of things, if that's what you're working out into your life, you're going to become a particular kind of person, and it's going to be expressed in a particular kind of way. Um, That would be like life in chaos. But then there's life in the Spirit with another kind of root. That's the love of God, uh, the change of heart that comes with repentance, forget what my other box says, love of truth, I think it is, right? Well, those things get worked out into your life. It looks very, very different, and that's the path to peace. So it's almost like uh, to go with this dough analogy, we also get the gift of peace, and we're working out that peace into every corner of our lives, this wholeness that comes with it. So in the previous sermon on this section, we talked a bit about how Paul, he writes literature as well as just writing letters. So there's a pattern to this particular section. So we looked at like the outer ring of things. We're moving in one ring this week. If you want to jump to that next slide, Caitlin. We're going to move it. We covered the top and the bottom there. We're going to move into this middle section. Next week, we're going to get to really the heart of the issue that has to do with covenant And that's assuming I get through the whole sermon this week. We're going to move forward in faith. Um, And then when we talk about the covenant, we're going to do communion together. Um, We haven't done communion together for quite a while. So the plan is next Sunday to do communion together as we wrap this up. And our Advent focus will be the love of God for us. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's come back to this week. All right. The first thing noted in this list today is Paul says there are people who rebellious against their parents. So in the Mediterranean context where Paul is writing this, this was a huge deal to everybody in every culture. This wasn't just unique to Jewish people. It was a big deal to respect your parents and not be rebellious against them. But in the Israelite community, this idea of of honoring your parents had a lot to do with, I mean, it was practical, but it had a lot to do with your parents were spiritual authorities in your life. They were the ones responsible for your teaching. Even if they didn't do it, they made sure you got to the temple. And so this, this parent's word often broadened out to the idea of you need to be respectful of the spiritual authorities in your life. Uh, and I, for our purposes right here, Uh, That's what I'm going to focus on because next week we're going to actually look at another thing Paul says where people basically hate their families. And so my sense is that this isn't focusing so much on the family aspect as it's focusing simply on the spiritual authorities in our lives. And there seems to be this idea that there's a connection between how we view the authority of God in our life and the authority of God's designated spiritual authorities in our life. Helps Word Study describes what Paul says here in this way. They are unwilling to be persuaded by God, which shows itself in outward disobedience or outward spiritual rebellion. In other words, because they don't want to hear what God has to say, they don't really want to hear what God's appointed spiritual authorities have to say. So I feel a little awkward talking about this because I'm a pastor here in this church. So I'm one of the spiritual authorities here. So I, <laughs> I feel like there's this danger this can come across as, come on, you guys, step it up. Listen to what I have to say. Uh, and that's not what I'm trying to accomplish here because I'll get to in a minute. I think spiritual authorities can be found in a number of different places in the kind of culture in which we live. The idea here is just to talk about where our hearts are in terms of submitting ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, 
because it probably has implications about how we are submitting ourselves to God as well. So I think it's common, to go back to this work out your salvation with fear and trembling verse, I think it's common to think of our salvation as something where we just go, listen, it's just me and Jesus. Everybody else kind of needs to move away. I need to read this passage of scripture. I need to wrestle with it for myself. I need to figure out how to apply it to my life. Y'all back off, I got this. That would have been unthinkable in the context in which the Bible was written because people just didn't wrestle with scripture that way. Uh, in the Old Testament, you went to the synagogue, the, you sat underneath the teaching of the rabbis. You always did it in community. There was something very important about that aspect. So I would say it this way for us, that there are spiritual authorities God has placed in the world and God intends them to have weight in our lives. So are they flawed? All God's people said, yep, we're on this side of heaven, right? We're not gonna be perfect. Does this mean we're supposed to follow mindlessly? No, because that's a cult, right? But we have the Bible, first of all, foundationally. Then we have creeds that were determined in the midst of the community of God's people. Then there's the weight of tradition, and tradition isn't perfect. That's why I'm using the word weight. I'm not saying it's controlling. I'm saying it has to be considered because that's thousands of years of God's people in community with the Bible and with the creeds wrestling with things. So we go back into history and ask ourselves, how have the followers of Christ wrestled with things for thousands of years? Uh, then there's denominations. Now, we're a non-denominational church. I grew up in a denomination. I think many of you did as well. And honestly, I kind of feel that lack a lot of the time. Like, I wish we were part of something bigger than ourselves because I like that idea of this authority, yet another level of authority that keeps us stable. Then there's obviously local church authority. And like I said, in the New Testament, even the Old Testament, parental authority was more than just structuring household chores. It had to do with the spiritual weight that parents carried in the lives of their children as well. So at the end of the day, we do have to own our own decisions, right? We own them. But I, I think God intends for those things to be informed by the spiritual weight that God has ordained in the structure of spiritual authorities. Yeah, so the opposite of that then is honoring our parents or honoring our spiritual authorities. And scripture gives two images. One I've been using already, that's this idea of giving weight. The other is the idea of adding wealth. It simply means that God-given spiritual authorities ought to be treated uh, with respect and honor. And I, I just like the idea of, or the image of it giving weight. And it's a tricky topic, right? Because only Jesus deserves our full weight. And we all know the stories or we have the experiences where spiritual authorities in our life at some level have let us down. They've been imperfect. And so this is why I'm trying to choose this word carefully. We give it weight. Because God intends for us to be formed by the weight of God-ordained spiritual authorities in our life. So I'm going to use 3D printers as an example of this. If you, have you seen 3D printers or some of you have them, I think. You, you get this glob of something. I don't have a 3D printer, so glob of something. And then you put it in this 3D printer, and something comes out that's formed and functional from this blob of nothing. 
So these blobs don't form themselves, right? They go through a process and they achieve their form because something forms them. So unless we've been raised by wolves, uh, we've been inescapably spiritually formed by something. And I would argue that's how God intends it. Now, sometimes we don't choose it. Let's say the family that we're born into, we are, we're molded in some fashion. Sometimes we do choose it. If you're an adult and you decided to come to this church, you've chosen a particular kind of 3D spiritual press, something is going to form in you as you come out of this. That's true if you listen to preachers online. It's true if you're reading devotionals that someone is publishing. It's if you're in a small group. If you have a group of peers that you allow to have weight in your life, all of these things are things that are forming us. We're putting ourselves into the process. Something's going to come out the other side. We're all inescapably formed this way. There's never a time that we sit down and go, it's just me and Jesus. We have all been formed by something. And some of that formation goes back 2,000 years. The big question is, to whom are we giving the authority to do this kind of thing in our life? And do we trust that authority enough that we're submitting ourselves to this process? And kind of, um, if I say submitting our autonomy, I once again don't mean we become robots or clones or something like that. I simply mean we function in a way that we let that weightiness press on us and form us. We see this in scripture. Paul told the church in Corinth, he said, listen, I planted something and then Apollos watered it. And so I assume that's kind of a pattern. We let people plant in our lives some kind of seed that will grow. Then we let people water it and it's going to flourish. And that's the way God intended it. We're not planting and watering ourselves. It's something that happens in community. In fact, in Hebrews, we read, you need someone to teach you. God creates the office of teacher or elder or pastor, and then he gives the gift, and he inspires that. And the implication is if those are gifts that are needed for the church, that means all of us are in need of being led and being taught and being shepherded in some fashion. So there's this spiritual press that we go through, and this is God's plan. So the first thing would I, say, I would say is embrace this. And once again, I'm keenly aware that, I, that can, this can come across as self-serving. I don't intend for that to be the case. And in fact, if, if you don't feel like this church body is giving you the kind of spiritual press where you can embrace the formation that's happening, can I beg and plead with you? Please talk with anybody you need to here in church leadership to address whatever it is that makes you uneasy uh, because it's really tough to, to submit to the weight of a process if you're not sure where this process is going to go or if you're unsure if the 3D press is doing its job right. So I say this with fear and trembling, <laughs> but, I, but I'm serious about it. Um, this is what is supposed to happen in church community. Um, choose your spiritual formation wisely and then let it do its work. The second thing, <clears throat> we'll get through this. Uh, they get shorter the longer I go on the list. The second thing Paul says is that people are ungrateful. So here's another definition for that. Ungrateful or ungraceful. And maybe think of grace with a dash and then full, F-U-L-L. -L. They're not full of grace. 
This is properly without God's grace or favor, which then results in unthankfulness or ungracefulness, which simply means that we don't pass on grace or favor. So I was reading a book recently. Um, you'll laugh when I say the title of it. It was like Paul and the Philosophers or something. But it was looking at when Paul was writing Scripture, what were the things happening culturally because Paul was a Roman-educated man, thus the name Paul. It's a Roman name. And he would have been very well, with, very well aware of what other people were saying around him. So this book was interacting with how you can see Paul explaining to the church how to either build on something else that was happening around them or reject things that were happening around them because they were false. And they had a fascinating chapter on the idea of gifts and of grace. And I, I learned a lot from this, and I'll try to summarize very briefly. In that culture, the giving of gifts was very important, and this was across the board, not just within the Christian church. And it, it was what they called a gift economy. You would give something to someone. Okay. Well, then that person would give something back. Well, that's cool. And then you'd give something back. Awesome. It just was kind of this loop that was going on with gift giving. And if someone gave you a gift and you did not give a gift back, it was a huge insult. You not only insulted the gift that was given, but you insulted the giver of the gift. And so Paul talks about this different places in Scripture, and I'll get to that in just a second. But the idea was that these gifts that you give, they are gifts of grace. They can't be earned because if it's earned, it's not a gift. A gift almost by definition was something that someone just from the goodness of their heart gave to someone else. And the giver never gave it with strings attached. The giver just gave it. But the receiver, the receiver saw strings attached because the receiver recognized I have been given a gift. In some fashion, I must respond, not necessarily in the exact same way, but I honor both the gift and the giver by giving something in response. So the recipient of the gift was in debt to the one who gave them a gift, not because the giver demanded it, but because the receiver recognized this is how I honor the gift. And the bigger the gift, the bigger the response owed. So, a little hint with biblical language, if someone gives their life for you, what do you owe them in response? Your life, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is a reasonable act of service. It's a reasonable response to God who gives you that. Not because God attached strings, but just because those of us who receive it recognized a gift like that. How do I respond to a gift like that? And you actually see this a lot in entertainment where uh, it's often maybe in medieval movies, usually involves swords or something, where someone saves somebody else and they're like, great, now I have to give you my life, I have to serve you, now I have to save you, and now I'm in your debt. It shows up in a lot of stories, uh, and I put a link in my notes where you could go online, there's a fascinating website that chronicles all of them, but it's kind of like that we recognize this, how do I honor that kind of gift? I give something back. So the grateful would respond to a gift in some fashion, uh, Seneca, who was a Roman writer, described it like throwing a ball back and forth. Like, if I throw the ball to you, it's a gift. I think my wife's sitting back there. I throw the ball to you. So, and then she throws it back to me. Cool, now we have a game going. Now, I didn't throw it to her because she had to throw it back to me, but she wanted to play ball. And so she threw it back. So think of it that way. There's always a, a thrower and a catcher, and then the catcher becomes the thrower. Ah, and they just keep going, and the game goes on. And the goal kind of is keep the ball in the air. 
How long can we play catch? We often do this at Thanksgiving with football, and then it never lasts very long. So Paul seems really comfortable with this when he talks about it in the church. And I'm going to give you a fancy phrase, virtuous reciprocal obligation. I got that from that book. I didn't come up with that. Virtuous just means it's a virtue. It's a good thing. Reciprocal means we're, th we're throwing the ball back and forth. And the obligation, once again, wasn't where the giver created an obligation, but the receiver said, I see that gift. I, I see what you did there, and I appreciate it. And so I will respond in some fashion. That's virtuous reciprocal obligation. If you grew up in church, are you familiar with the word koinonia? We love that word for fellowship. I have a bunch of uh, passages listed in my notes. That's the idea of koinonia fellowship, actually is that we're living together in a community where we are serving and giving. Oh, and it's an act of appreciation and response. Someone else serves and gives us or passes it on to others or hopefully both. And if that kind of church economy, that kind of gift economy is what characterizes churches, it's a beautiful picture of what life together in Christ looks like. Uh, quick note. If I wait for someone to earn a gift from me, once again, that's too late. It's a gift. It's not payment for services rendered. I don't just become a grace-filled person and a gift-giving person because you earned it from me. That's just payment, and now you're like an employee. No, I just, I just give. As followers of Christ, we just give. Why did Jesus come for us? So loved the world. He gave his son, not because the world deserved it, <laughs> just because he's a gift-giving God, right? Second point, if I give something back to prove I was worthy of the gift, I've also missed, missed the point. In fact, I've insulted the grace of the giver. The giver didn't give it because you were worthy of it. They just gave it because they're a gift giver. So you don't have to view the gift as, oh, now I've, got, I've really got to step up and prove I was a good person to give the gift to. No, you're, you're released of that kind of obligation, uh, you're just going to respond because you want to value what they did. And then finally, if I'm given a gift and I give something bigger back to show the other gift up, or maybe I think, hey, if I give something bigger back, they'll give me an even bigger gift next time, right? Then I'm just a jerk. And the relationship's going to be in trouble because, once again, it's not a relationship of simply, I, I give you something, I'm full of grace. And then when you give me something, I go, uh, thank you. I'm, I'm grateful. And so... Um, I will honor what you gave me by paying it forward, paying it back to you. It's just, does that kind of make sense? This, we're just throwing the ball back and forth. Grace, grace and grace and gifts. So gratefulness, it's not just a feeling, though certainly we have feelings that go with it. Gratefulness is an act, biblically. It's how relationships are built. Uh, I feel like I have to go with this example because it makes me happy. So let's say you give me a compliment about my beard. And that will indeed be an act of grace. <laughs> um, and then I compliment you on your taste in Michigan football teams. And that too will be an act of grace. I had to use, I spent time coming up with that one. The idea is that um, you're kind to me. I, I see that and I value that, so I am kind to you. And then I'm also kind to others because I recognize I, re I really appreciated that. Um, you see me. I love the biblical language where it says Jesus sees people. It's not just glancing at them like Jesus sees them. Okay, you saw me. Thank you. Uh, I will try to see you in return. 
and then I'll pass it on and I'll try to find somebody else that I, I see and I interact with grace and I just, it's the, it's the flow of church as God intends it. It's a beautiful picture of what God means for the church to be like. The third thing that, that Paul talks about is people who are unholy. And this is simply a lack of reverence for what should be hallowed. Um, and so hallow and holy, holy is simply set apart. It's something is not just common or degraded. In fact, Matthew 7 uses language where it says, don't give holy things to the dogs or to the pigs, which were just images of that time of things that would degrade the thing that was given to them. You know, don't cast pearls before swine. That's not where pearls go. How do you treat pearls? The contrast is obviously that we as followers of Christ, not only are we holy, we are set aside by God, but that one of our goals is to treat things reverentially around us, to try to hallow what deserves to be hallowed. So two clear things. God, <laughs> hallowed be your name which is more than just the words we say with God's name. It has to do with God's reputation and character, all those things. We treat God reverentially. The second thing is people because they're image bearers. So every person in the world gets treated with honor and dignity and respect because they bear the image of God. And then if you become a follower of Christ, the Bible ups it and says, now you're all temples and you don't desecrate temples. Because if you do that to the temple, you say something about the God housed in that temple. So now we're temples of the Holy Spirit, right? So we have those two things for sure. We treat God as holy that is set apart. We treat it reverently, and we treat the image bearers of God as set apart. We're separate from the rest of creation, and we're reverential with our treatment. But I, I think there's actually more, and if I were to summarize it in one word, what all things should be honored and treated with appropriate care and reverence, that's everything. Now, I say appropriate care and reverence because we, we can give too much worth to things. Um, this is a sheet of paper. I can crumble it up, and that's okay. Uh, I can't crumble you up, right? I can't grab a chicken at home and try to mash it together. So when I say appropriate, I, I'm not saying that we kind of idolize or, uh, yeah, idolize things. I'm just saying that we as Christians are actually called to look at everything around us and say, all right, this is all part of God's created world. What does it look like for me to, to treat this thing and set it apart for that which it was set apart for? Maybe that's a good way to say it. How do I treat this with respect in a way that sets it apart for that which was set apart for? And I, I think with Christians, that's everything. That's us working out our salvation into every corner of our life and the world. What does it look like to treat God's entire world with reverence? All right, the fourth thing, fourth thing Paul says in this section is that those who are causing trouble are without restraint. The word is incontinent having no control over the passions or urges, which would be emotions, words, or appetites of all kinds. And so it's literally an image, it's a biological image of incontinence. Um, and if you have wrestled with this or you know someone ha has, you know it's a frustrating and embarrassing thing because you can't control when your body expels waste. And what Paul is saying is here is, listen, you've got people in the church who are expelling moral waste, 
They, there is no filters. It just surges out of them. It's kind of this desire to live like a moral animal in some ways, a slave to instincts and hungers and lusts. So the opposite of that, obviously, is to be temperate or to be restrained. So it's a blessing to be able to restrain when our body expels waste. I think a point Paul's making is it's a blessing to be able to restrain when our body expels moral waste, right? So sometimes when it comes to physical incontinence, we literally can say, I couldn't help it because our, our body is just doing something that we can't control, right? But as Christians, with the exception of the kind of damage to our bodies where we have like a traumatic brain injury or there's some uh, significant developmental disorders, we as Christians, we can never say I can't help myself when it comes to the words that come out of our mouths or the attitudes we unleash or the urges to follow our immoral instincts or our lusts or our hungers. We, we don't get to say that because we have the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And so God helps us in those moments when we can't help ourselves. So when, if I'm tempted to say something like, um, you know, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have posted that. I shouldn't have gone to that website online, but I just couldn't help myself. I'm a liar. I'm a follower of Christ. I have the Holy Spirit. It means I have Holy Spirit power. I could help myself because God was helping me. I couldn't help myself. Uh, God could help me in that moment, right? I had access to that power. I did. I have to be honest about that. I chose it. I did it, right? And the same thing goes for you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You, you can't say, I couldn't help it when I said that. I couldn't help it when I did that. You could. You didn't want to feels tense. Am I wrong? I, d I don't think so. That unsettles me, by the way. That unsettles me. I really want, <laughs> I really want it to be the case that other people push my buttons and it's their fault. Yeah, but that would be called uh, having a form of godliness and denying its power. Right? So between the Holy Spirit, the guidelines of God's word, and the company of God's people, there is no temptation to sin that we cannot bear, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's good news. Y'all, we're called to live in a community together in which there is no temptation we cannot bear. Yeah, God, God's equipping us to do life together. He calls us, he equips us. Number five. Uh, Paul uses language where he says these people are savage, and the word is bestial. They're inhuman. They're merciless. They're harsh. They're cruel. I like this commentary. They're both soft and hard. That is, they incontinently indulge themselves, and they're inhuman to others when they should be hardened to self-indulgence and soft toward others. They've got them flipped around. And it's actually a thread that runs through the Bible that from Genesis, do we gravitate toward the image of the beast or the image of God? Which is the thing that we most like? We've done some sermons on this before. But if we think of image of beast as the law of tooth and claw, it's survival of the fittest, you get what you can. The opposite, biblically speaking, I think, is being hospitable or merciful, 
what that commentary called being soft toward others. And that's an interesting one because I think we live in a culture where the idea that we would be soft toward others is often kind of frowned upon. Nobody wants to be weak. Nobody wants to be thought of as weak. Don't tread on me is a motto that we tend to love. But the biblical image that starts with Christ is that we are called to be merciful and hospitable. So God is described as abounding in mercy in the Psalms. Jesus told people he'd rather we show mercy than that we bring a sacrifice to him. I mean, for our application, God would rather you be somewhere showing merciful things than singing with us here in a couple minutes. He desires mercy as the ultimate kind of sacrifice. Uh, I read, blessed are the meek and the peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount. Greater love has no one else than to lay down your life for your friend. We serve others sacrificially over and over in Scripture. What happens when someone approaches us with wrath? We turn it away with a soft answer. We overcome evil with good. If someone strikes us or they take our cloak, we don't respond with revenge. In fact, we heap coals of fire on their head, which we shame them with kindness. Proverbs says, give food and water to your enemy and the Lord will reward you. Over and over, this idea of being hospitable and being merciful as this foil to being like animals where we're just savage and we act like beasts. And then finally, this is probably the summary of this section. They're haters of anything good, says Paul, anything good. Literally, if it's good people, if it's good thoughts, if it's good ideas, if it's good words, it's anything that's good, they hate these kind of things. And that's just a horrible summary. Like, that's a terrifying summary of what life could look like depending where we put our roots and the kind of fruit that comes from that. But then, of course, there's the opposite. And that is the lovers of good, everything good. We love good people. We love good thoughts. We love good ideas. We love good words. We love good actions. We love those things. Not just kind of do them and kind of uh, golf clap. We're excited about those things. And that, once again, is back to the idea of rooted in these particular proper loves. And then the love of all these other things swell up from it. Whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is any praise, dwell on those things. Love those things. Which brings us full circle back to peace for Advent. Two final verses from James 3. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. How can we do this? God's gift of grace to us that brings peace between us and God. And then that peace, that wholeness, flows from us. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then Romans 14, 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace. I think that's working out our salvation. Let us pursue what makes for peace. Let us go after it, and then let us work it into all the areas of our life because it will not only make for peace, it makes for mutual upbuilding, which I think, once again, is God's beautiful design for his church, that we get together, and as we all put our roots down here and, and bring this kind of fruit, I think this is probably the peace that passes understanding which starts once again with peace between us and God, even though we're remarkably sinful, that's incredible. Then I think it's 
lots of things, peace in the midst of storms, et cetera. But I, I wonder if one thing we don't think about and talk about enough, I know I don't, is that maybe it's the peace that passes understanding as God is building this new community, this new humanity, he says, of remarkably different people that have no business figuring out how to make a community together, and yet they do because there's a peace that passes our ability to comprehend. How are we all getting along? <laughs> By the grace of God. And then we pass that grace on. I'm looking forward to just um, singing here, settling in. And it, we get the full band back for the first time since February, which is super cool. Um, and if we can just, I mean, that's lit up for a reason, and that's kind of not as much. This, the gift of God, what he has given to us through Christ, what he's given to us through his word and his spirit, where he has let us put our roots so that we become this kind of tree, which, as we say a lot of times, it's not just for our good, it's for God's glory. And God's glory is seen in, this, in his people, the church, this, this oasis, this outpost of heaven. Okay, now I'm just going to repeat myself. Um, worship team, let's do it. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.